Starbucks was beating McDonald's as the number one food sell retail. We're making more money than ever. And let's just be classical Marxists about it. The only way to um, profit is from the working class doing labor. And labor is just the easiest thing to squeeze. We're in the same exact homes that our police officers and sheriff's officers are in. The difference is most of the time we're equipped with our portfolio and that's about it and cell phone. So there are some pretty dangerous situations that, that we can get into as caseworkers. The pilot takes place Friday, June 13th, 1980. You know, we're in a different world. There weren't answering machines. I mean, the, I, I don't think there was even call waiting. We never, ever expected to find a smoking gun in the archives, because why on earth would an illegal establishment leave a paper trail uh, behind? But in fact, the Detroit Historical Col uh, Museum collections have business cards from over 200 speakeasies. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On today's show, members of Alabama Starbucks Workers United talk with the Valley Labor Report about why they're organizing a union. On the Labor Exchange, a conversation with Colorado AFL-CIO President Josette Jaramillo. Executive producer and showrunner Robin Veith talks with the Third and Fairfax podcast about making the 80s crime drama Candy for Hulu. And Tales from the Ruther Library literally digs into local history as Dr. Krista Ryzewski discusses archaeological digs at famous locations in Detroit. As always, you can find these shows and, of course, the rest of the 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network at laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. To you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Yeah, let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and bring uh, the unionizing baristas from Birmingham, Alabama, into the show. Um, and why don't y'all just go ahead and introduce yourselves? I'll go first. I'm Kyle McGuckin. I am a shift supervisor at the third and twentieth location. I've been there at the company for about six years. My pronouns are he, they. My pronouns are she, they. Um, I've been a barista at Starbucks for a little over a year. Why do you think it is that, that right now is the moment that, that the stars have just kind of started to align and Starbucks baristas all across the country are saying, we're going to do a union now, as opposed to maybe six years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago? Well, there, there, have, there have been, I think the IWW is actually one of the first, um, had some of the first attempts to get some Starbucks's to unionize. And there are a couple of stores, maybe at least one I've heard of in Canada. But um, as mm -hmm. far as this big swell of movement, I guess we just have to be cliche and just say COVID did a number on all of us. Mm -hmm. um, prices are going up. It's hard to keep things in stock. And to be perfectly fair to some of the customers who get very agitated, to be fair <laughs> to them, I don't think they all necessarily like 
because they just don't have the experience we have as baristas and how to make beverages versus what they see online versus whatever their thoughts are. Mm -hmm. There just comes a point of contention there, just miscommunication versus an inability to help with people's needs. Right. We're also, um, personally, I think we're all just extremely disconnected. Like, let's be real. Starbucks tried to tries to pride itself on having that third place environment where you can have a home away from home. And, you know, when I started six years ago, we used to do coffee tastings late at night when I was a closer, we would just take a break, get Mm. some cool coffee and taste with customers. We knew them by name and we still know some by name, but now it's just become an overwhelming barrage of mobile orders and overwhelming Mm. just line through the drive through. And, you know, we're, we're kind of missing a little bit of that. I don't know if um, it's just something that's kind of edged away in all of us, even my own store manager. Like we all feel this just something just isn't the same. Something isn't right. And I'm sure as far as the customer base goes to that level of disconnect, that level of feeling alone in this kind of like weird postmodern sense that we're in is causing just people to lash out, to just mm-hmm. not have the, uh, to just, Something's wrong with my coffee. I got to wash it out. You know what I mean? So it's just anger. It's a very, very angry time when it didn't have to be. And it wasn't, you know? Mm -hmm. Why do you think it is that the management has has responded uh, to the initial complaints and to the campaign in the way that it has? Well, I'm not trying to be a cynic about it, but the fact of the day we've made a record profit in the quarter. I think Starbucks was beating McDonald's as the number one food sale retailer. We're making more money than ever. And let's just be classical Marxists about it. The only way to um, profit is from the working class doing labor and labor is just the easiest thing to squeeze. So they see profit, we see everything going on, you know. Mm -hmm. They're not here. I'm, I'm, they're here now. I've seen a lot of the oh, upper bet. management in my stories right. of this last week, but um, haven't seen them for about a year beforehand. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it comes from a place of fear because they're finally realizing that they're like one person, but this one person is over these thousands, millions of employees, basically. And now all these employees are able to feel empowered to have their voices heard. And I feel like after not having your voice heard for so long and you're, you know, you're just daily troubles, you're not being dealt mm-hmm. with, uh, we're going to have pushback. Don't forget to subscribe on the YouTube if you're watching us on the stream. Uh, we do appreciate that. Yeah, very we do much. appreciate your time. Support us on Patreon or on our website, tvlr.fm. Get this uh, really cool new hat. And uh, yeah, y'all have a good rest of your weekend. All power to the workers. Solidarity, y'all.
get the food. We drive the cab. We load the ship. We run the lab. We build the bridges. We fly the plane. We do the work. This is our day. We do the work. Boom, boom. We do the work. Boom, boom. We do the work. This is our day. This is the Labor Exchange on KGNU, Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. I'm your host, Robert Lindgren, with the Colorado AFL-CIO and Denver Newspaper Guild. Our conversation today is with Colorado AFL-CIO President Josette Jaramillo, and we're going to be talking about her work as a social worker in Pueblo County, her uh, local Ask Me 1335, and she also served as host last episode and will in the future. Why do you think it's important for you to have a union and for your coworkers at the, at the county to have a union? So we deal with some really challenging stuff at work and and not just in child welfare, even in assistance payments and child support. We're not always everybody's favorite people, especially, you know, during COVID when, when we were trying to figure out how to deliver services to the community and also keep ourselves safe. So it was, it's really important just to be able to have that outlet where you can join with 20 other caseworkers or 20 other assistance payments workers and talk about the issues that are happening on the job. So it really is a vehicle to bring those issues up to our department director, our county manager, our board of county commissioners, and really talk about what's happening on the front lines or in the trenches, as they say, because most of our elected officials have never worked at social services. They've never been a caseworker. They've never worked in assistance payments. I think many of them don't even know what we make. And what we make on paper looks good and dandy, but what we bring home is another story because you got to pay for, you know, insurance and and benefits and taxes and and all of that that good stuff. So it has been really, really important, I think, to make sure that things are done fairly and that things are done safely because we really do deal with some very dangerous people, some very aggressive people sometimes. So having that vehicle to talk about what those issues are has been really important. Thinking to the work of of county workers, you know, in your community, what are some things that you don't think the public understands or you'd like them to understand about the work that you and your coworkers do? I think that the public doesn't understand that sometimes our hands are tied by regulations by the state, you know, in terms of who gets benefits, who doesn't, how we kind of determine the eligibility for that. Same thing with child support. I think they also don't understand that as caseworkers, we're also bound by the court and by regulations by Colorado Department of Human Services, which kind of trickles down from the legislature, as well as the Colorado Children's Code, which is, you know, a book that's about this thick of all the laws and stuff that govern child welfare. And then we're also governed by federal rules because our funding comes, you know, from the feds and from the state. We're actually 80-20 funded, most of us. And some of us are 100% funded by the state. So uh, the county chips in 20% of our wages where the state pays 80%. I think it's also important for people to know that We're in the same exact homes that our police officers and sheriff's officers are in. The difference is most of the time we're equipped with our padfolio 
and that's about it and a cell phone. So there are some pretty dangerous situations that that we can get into as caseworkers in child welfare. I don't think that we have a great reputation in in the community and I think that it's the nature of the work that we do. You're kind of you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't in our area, but it, it is it is a pretty serious business I think when you're removing children from their parents, but it's always with cause. You know, we don't get to make those decisions by ourselves. They have to go through you know, the court and it becomes a court order. So I don't think that people really understand how many rules and regulations and stuff we have to deal with and kind of know about off the top of our head. Thank you so much for being on the Labor Exchange today. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's fun to sit on the other side of the microphone where I just get to talk about who I am and answer the questions that you have prepared for me. So thanks for for having me on. Oh, and I can't wait to get you back in the host seat because you did an amazing job at the last episode. Anyone who's listening should go into the archives and listen to President Jaramillo's conversation with Liz Schuler, president of the AFL-CIO. This has been the Labor Exchange on KGNU, Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. We are a member of the Labor Radio Network. Check out uh, more great labor conversations at laborradionetwork.org. I'm your host today, Robert Lindgren, and we've been talking with Josette Jaramillo, a social worker and president of the AFL-CIO and Ask Me Local 1335. Have a great day. And it's go, boys, go. They'll time your every breath. And every day you're in this place, you're two days nearer death. But you go. sitting here with Robin Veith, the co-creator, co-showrunner, and executive producer of the new Hulu show Candy, which is a limited series about Candy Montgomery, the somewhat infamous 1980 axe murderer, the original Desperate Housewife, I've seen her been called, and it stars Jessica Biel, Melanie Linsky, Pablo Schreiber, Tim Simmons, and uh, we're really excited to have Robin here today to discuss the series and her career, and of course, her take on the craft behind both Candy and some of the other things she's worked on. So thank you, Robin, so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So to just jump right in to Candy, can you tell us a little bit about how you came across the story and what it was about the Candy Montgomery story that you just felt needed to be told, though a wider audience needed to really experience her unusual uh, true crime story? Yeah, Nick Antosca, who is co-creator of Candy, and I have been friends for at least 10 years, I think now, and just really enjoy each other as people and working together. We work together on the act as well. And so in the fall of 2019, he called me and said, would you be interested in you know, doing a project together? And I was like, absolutely. And so he brought this idea of Candy Montgomery to me, which was alarming to me because I'm a huge true crime fan and I'd never heard this story, which I I found very surprising. But when I started researching it and getting into it, it just really spoke to me. And I think I said to Nick, this is the most madman axe murder I've ever heard of. So it's up my alley, <laughs> like everything that I love. And also in the fall of 2019, 
it was the height of Me Too and everything. And so that's why I thought the story would be relevant today because in, in the Me Too movement, it finally gave women a vehicle to discuss this pent up rage that we sometimes feel and have been trained our whole lives to not really acknowledge or discuss. And now we can finally start talking about it. So that's what made it initially more interesting to me. And the 2020 hit. And once we were in lockdown and it went from it's just two weeks to two months to the summer, mm-hmm. I started feeling, okay, this story is universal now. Now everyone can understand the feeling of being expected to be good and do the right thing and still wanting to just break out. Yeah. And it's like, you know, the height of lockdown, it's just, of course, I'm going to do everything. Of course, I'm going to do everything that's asked of me for society, but ask me to do one more goddamn thing. And I swear to God, (laughs) and of course you would never do that. But like, I I think everyone can tiptoe up to that line and and identify with a breaking point. I've only seen the pilots. I want to talk about that first. And because I feel like it probably is a little unique as opposed to the next four episodes, correct? That we have coming. And so I'll talk about those in a second. But first, I I want to talk about the pacing, actually, in the pilot, which I found really interesting. And like you said, there's so much character building and great work there. But there's also this just like slow burn tension and suspense where you really, even just watching Melanie Linsky walk around or Betty walk around her empty house and you feel her anxiety at being left alone with the crying baby to her husband, Alan, in the hotel room. And these places where you're really living in people waiting, you really are sometimes almost feeling that real time anxiety of being in the, the space of not knowing, not having the comfort waiting for the inevitable to actually be spoken. And I found it very discomforting in the right way. <laughs> I think I'm pretty sure that's what you're going for. But I'm also curious how that, the process of like how that really, on the craft side, how that looked on the page, how you really wanted that to come across on the script. Uh, and then once you got into production, start working with uh, your director and your cast, how you really, and I, an editor, I'm sure too, how you really wanted that to feel on screen. Yeah, it's, the pilot takes place June 3rd, Friday, June 13th, 1980, and five days shy of six years old on that date. And so I remember like this whole experience and it's laying the foundation that we're in a different world for those who didn't grow up then where there weren't answering machines. I, I don't think there was even call waiting then, or if there was, it was an expense that we didn't have. And people were relative today untethered like you didn't know where someone was like nobody had a tracker on them nobody had a ring camera like you couldn't just call anyone on a cell phone and so that was important to this whole day in the pilot is just the anxiety of not being able to reach someone I think today you could maybe equivocate it to like if your phone runs out of battery And it's hours before you can get anywhere to charge it. Just tap into that emotion. So it's just, it's a bit of a time capsule in in that way. But yeah, and and I, on the page, I was even more extreme with it because every time anyone makes a phone call, I was just like, I wrote in like the phone rings eight times. I want to see all eight. Yeah. Because that was, I don't know if it was everybody, but that, at least that was the standard that I broke up, that, that I was brought up with, is when you call somebody, you let it ring eight times because you don't know where they are in the house. 
So you've got to get people time to get to the phone. But if they don't get there in eight rings, they're not home and you just hang up. And I was very insistent on that for a very long time until Mike Uppendahl, our amazing director and like a longtime sort of creative partner of, of mine, was just like, nobody's going to want to watch that, bro. <laughs> We're going to do it. We're going to have the tension. We're going to have the, the pacing. And, and he was very instrumental in that. And it, it, the pace was very deliberate, very calculating, but he's just like, there's a line. And I eventually I agreed. Okay. We're not going to let every phone ring eight times. <laughs> <laughs> a couple times where you get eight in there though. So, you know, yeah. yeah, you, you make the point. Thank you, Robin, so much for making the time. We're all really excited to keep watching candy and see what happens next. And, uh, and thank you for sharing all your tidbits from your really amazing career with us. Thank you for having me. And thank you for all those nice things. Hello, and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the hippest city on earth, Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host, along with the partner in crime, Troy Eller English. Hi, Troy. How are you doing? I'm great, Dan. How are you? It's a lovely spring day in Detroit, isn't it? It is beautiful. It is. We haven't had this in a long time. In this podcast, we talk with Dr. Krista Rzuski. Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Anthropology at Wayne State University, Dr. Razuski received her PhD from Brown University and was a postdoctoral fellow there as well. And she has written a book called Detroit Remains, Archaeology and Community Histories of Six Legendary Places. Krista, thank you so much for joining us on the Ruth Tales from the Ruther. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's talk us about what in your case studies. Yeah. Um, you have a you have a lot. So I had to pick the one that's the sexiest one that we all heard about in the press here locally. And that was about Little Harry's Speakeasy. So for our listeners, explain this case study and what was so unique, what was the unique draw from the public toward it? Yeah. So let me tell you about the Little Harry Speakeasy in, in general. Detroit has a fixation with the Prohibition era purple gang. The Purple Gang was a ragtag group of mostly Russian Jewish, I guess for lack of a better word, mobsters or criminals who mm. were really in charge of the bootlegging and smuggling industry that ferried alcohol from Canada into Detroit and then redistributed it throughout the, the Midwest during the Prohibition era. They were a violent criminal organization, and especially during the 1920s. They were a great source of shame for the Jewish community in Detroit at the time. And that was a time when the Jewish community in Detroit was also really excluded from a lot of opportunities when it came to office holding and being part of different social groups and so on. So over the years, though, a century later, we think of the Purple Gang with rose-colored glasses. They're almost romanticized in that, that, um, that distance of time has introduced a bit of a buffer that that makes it safe to to focus and be enamored by the the purple gang. It allows a kind of fascination. So anyway, the Little Harry Speakeasy project was the very first community based project I did when I came to Wayne State. I came to Wayne State in 2011, and this project started in 2012. And it was initiated by a local preservationist, Marian Christensen, who at the time was conducting the tours for Preservation Detroit, which is an important uh, actor in this entire mm-hmm. book. And she was in conversation with the owner of a sports bar that's down on Third Street near Third and Fort, Fort Street downtown, Tommy Burrell. 
and the, the bar is still there. It's called Tommy's Detroit Bar and Grill. You should all go check it out. Uh, Tommy was uh, telling her how there used to be a speakeasy in the basement of his bar, and there was an underground tunnel, and there had been a very old patron who was in his 80s who used to come in and tell stories about how he went and attended the speakeasy with his father when he was a young boy. So we had all of these details from this uh, kind of telephone game of oral histories that passed through. And so they invited me to come in and take a look at it. And I have to say, at first, I was skeptical because from the moment I arrived to Detroit and people found out I, I did more recent archaeology, I, I would probably receive an email or a phone call a week from somebody <laughs> telling me they had a prohibition era speakeasy or yeah. still house or tunnel or whatnot in their backyard. But Marion had done quite a bit of legwork and historical research, and it seemed like this was a really uh, viable place. So anyway, long story short, we devised a series of research questions designed to first verify if there was um, some sort of underground room below Tommy's Bar and Grill that had a tunnel access, and then to get more information about that from archival sources or oral. And then our kind of secondary objective was to figure out whether or not, if it was indeed a speakeasy, was it affiliated with the Purple Gang? We created uh, kind of two task forces, one focused on surveying the architectural remains of the basement and looking for clues about whether there was a, a hidden room down there at some point, and the other focused on conducting archival research. And we never ever expected to find a smoking gun in the archives because why on earth would an illegal <laughs> establishment leave a paper trail uh, behind? But in fact, the Detroit Historical Co um, Museum collections have business cards from over 200 speakeasies wow. uh, or access cards from over 200 speakeasies in their collection. And one of them was for the Little Harry Speakeasy. And we know it was at this particular location because it was actually an address on the card. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And so we learned the name of it. And that was really important because the two owners of the, uh, two of the owners of the building during the 1920s and 1930s during Prohibition had the first name Harry Weitzman and Harry Bianchini. Mm -hmm. And through the course of our research, we were able to verify that there was there was a hidden underground room. The tunnel's still there. We excavated the tunnel at the very lowest level. We found all sorts of bottles and tools and other objects that we could date to the 1920s or earlier. So it synced up with the time period of the occupation. There were still some wall panel fragments, a different electrical system, and, and some other remains in that that one basement room that kind of matched up with the oral history in some ways and uh, certainly verified that there was a one room underground speakeasy. It was probably just used for entertaining and that there was this business card that patrons would show at the tunnel entrance to the guard and it would gain them access. Detroiters were um, probably the hardest decision they had to make during Prohibition was not how to get their hands on alcohol, but which speakeasy to choose. <laughs> they were all over the place. It was the worst kept secret in the city. But anyway, all of this generated a lot of attention, a lot of um, interest from the national media and from the Jewish community and from the business owner himself and the collaborative process of working with Preservation Detroit and Tom Burrell was really great. And in the aftermath, um, 
it was a great boon to local business and there were a lot of tour groups coming through. They still curate the space for visitors and it was a way to shed light on Detroit's kind of criminal past, but also think about small business owners back then as entrepreneurs and get a better sense of what the social scene was like. There's still a little bit of a kind of ironic tinge to this whole fascination with the Purple Gang and the speakeasy. And that's uh, the image we try to refute of Detroit today is one where we're the murder capital of the world and we're a place beset by uh, crime and gambling and extortion and corruption. Um, Everything we resist in the stereotypes of criminal Detroit today is what people are fascinated Mm -hmm. by when it comes to stories of the Purple Gang. That's so cool. That is like amazing how that all connects together for the small business person within Detroit. That's really cool. Thank you. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. I do appreciate it. And I had a great conversation with you. Thank you, Dan. This was great. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Remember, we've got links to the shows you heard today and the show notes for the podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. And you can also find them, use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produced the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. You can find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this has been Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.